This is the Question in Bodies podcast, a catalogue of inconclusive conversations about culture, gender, bodies, literature, movies and horror. With me, your host, Howard David Ingham. In this episode, hope, joy and storytelling with guest Monique Lacoste. Hi, for my inaugural episode, I'd like to welcome to the table virtual imaginary table that we have Dr Monique Lacoste or should I say Reverend Dr Monique Lacoste who had recently uh, recalled that she was ordained 10 years ago which is kind of marvellous. Monique is an old friend of mine, younger friend of mine I should say and is a writer, a researcher, an educator, um, a filmmaker and a theatre director as well and yeah. um, has uh, was one of the people who I was very happy to have contribute to We Don't Go Back as well. And, and no Monique for nearly 20 years now, maybe. Don't say that. That's, that's, that can't um, be true. <laughs> but we're going to talk about storytelling and the problem with storytelling in the present day. So, Monique, what's the problem with storytelling? Oh my goodness. I mean, I think that there's a lot of problems, right? I think that we've talked about some of the specific things and, and I think if I can stick to some of like some of the things that have been on my mind a lot lately and, and if I give a little background, it might help. So yeah, my field is cultural studies. And so politics of representation and media representation is sort of my entire focus or I should say it was the entire focus of my academic work. And so it's something I care a lot about. It's something I'm very passionate about. And what I've observed both in media and in media criticism and fan communities is a real bastardization of the precepts of that theory, that theory, that philosophy of media. It's a, it's a real, um, well, I mean, like everything else, like with everything else on the internet, it's a place where nuance goes to die, right? And so right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not a place for nuance. And so I think that that that's what I'm seeing happening with this work that, I, that I'm very passionate about, that I care a lot about. I care a lot about storytelling. I think that the process of making meaning is, is the thing, right? That makes us human. I mean, it is, it is the most quintessentially human thing. And we Absolutely, do that through story, yeah. you know? And we do that through story. And, and what we're seeing now is, I think we're going through a time and these cultural epics happen and they happen for all kinds of reasons, but we're going through, I would say a very puritanical time. Uh, where and, and and also there's all all the influences of of economic structures as well, which I'm sure we'll get into. Where I feel like there's a real limitation and a lack of nuance and a lack of thought and consideration about what storytelling as an art form is actually supposed to be. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, I think it's a really interesting that you brought out that you think we're in a puritanical time. I'm like thinking about this. Obviously. A big chunk of my work has been writing about movies from the 1960s and the 1970s, particularly in the 1970s, mm-hmm. and um, or even the 1980s. But it's just fair that there are many more nipples in movies from the 1970s and 80s than there <laughs> are now. Many more nipples, and I would also point out many more working class people. Yes, a lot uh, more poor people. A lot more poor people and a lot more poor people represented with a lot more dimensionality and humanity than I think is the norm now. So it's both, I mean, it's all those things. It's like both of those, it's, there's other things as well. But yeah, I think both of those things, there's a lot more sex. 
and there's a lot more non-upper class, non-upper middle class representation. I think also it's, it's really interesting that characters in many beloved media properties, shall we call them, do get recast as being more affluent mm -hmm. and more in line. So for example, let's say the beloved American storytelling character, Peter Parker, Mm -hmm. who in the 1960s is broke. He is a broke high school student who is an orphan living with his auntie. He in initially becomes Spider-Man in order to make a bit of cash. He gets right. superpowers. His first thought is, I'll make some cash out of this. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And only when this causes something terrible to happen does he actually get to that point but it's always with great power comes great responsibility one of his biggest right. villains is the kingpin who's basically like a hugely wealthy gangster dude gangland right. guy who's right. also a hugely respected industrious peter parker right. now in the movies he lives in a lovely house and had an arms trading billionaire as his patron <laughs> who makes his stuff for him. Oh my God, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, all right, people can go, oh yeah, but Aunt May died, spoilers. And then mm -hmm. let's not even go talk about spoiler culture. No, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, <laughs> we're gonna have, we're gonna spoil things. <laughs> you know, you all know, the spoilers, you just turn off now if you don't want spoilers. Um, all the spoilers. You know, people can go, oh, Aunt May dies. People can go, Tony Stark dies, it's only his, he gets a big quest. Yeah, yeah. He works for the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really hate Tony Stark, I have to say. Like, in the world of, of, of the modern MCU, I think, and I like Robert Downey Jr., you know, it's nothing against the actor. I think that he brings a lot of charisma to the role, and I kind of resent him for that, because Tony Stark is a monster. He's a, he's a, he's a monster. And I don't think he's ever really kind of, it's just very hard to get over that he started his career making weapons. And that so many of the challenges that they face, I mean, in almost every Avengers movie, one of the things that they're it's facing is, 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 it's his fault. Yeah. Almost every single time because of his legacy of being a war profiteer. Yeah. It's all his fault. You know? Yeah, oh, he's like that, but but no, he's one of the good arms dealers. I saw the first Iron Man movie, and of course, he's a good, of course, he he's a good arms dealer. There's a bad arms dealer, you know, right, 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 right. right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, so, so yeah, you have that kind of thing, but then I mean, you have Captain Marvel as well, who is a USAF fighter pilot in the movie, yeah. and who is. The movie was it made with the cooperation of the United States right. Air Force and is basically propaganda. I mean, Brie Larson was doing advertisements for the Air Force while as part of her um, to, uh, to, uh, campaign for the film. She was doing actual ads for the Air Force. So, I mean, it was very overtly trying to get particularly young girls interested in the Air Force, interested in if you're in the Air Force. Which is like, and I mean, you know, like, like the whole girl boss thing. <laughs> it's fun, but I mean, the girl boss thing is fundamentally capitalist, isn't it? Because it's about yes. being a boss. You yes. Know? yes. It's like yes. not notwithstanding the fact that once you're a boss, you're a bad guy. But you know, right. maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I'm biased here. But you know, it's 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 the thing, and then 
that storytelling, that way in which movies are made now is kind of troubling because it has all these implications as to how we see ourselves, don't you think? Oh, I mean, I think that that's what, that's what media does, right? I mean, and that is one of the fundamental arguments of the politics of representation is that by providing ways to see ourselves, it's providing both sort of avenues of identification, right, for people, right. but also that it's, and I mean, and I think my favorite, so my favorite argument, and the argument that comes from my discipline of cultural studies, so this is Stuart Hall's argument, this isn't my argument, but, but his argument is essentially that popular culture is a space of contestation and negotiation. Right, that okay. it's not, right, that stories that. are not, right, yeah, so I will, yeah. So stories are not these just sort of innocent, neutral things ever. A story is never innocent and neutral, especially when it's expressed to a large audience outside of a small, right? I mean, like there's these different contexts of, of, uh, of communication. And so when, you're, when you are putting millions of dollars into something and it's showing to a widespread audience, that's never a neutral act. That's always a political act inherently because mm -hmm. it's about power and space and about how we collectively as a body, but also as individuals within that body, understand ourselves. What are our roles? What are our, what, what are the possibilities for us? What are the limitations? I mean, it's, it's all of these things, but his argument was that this is not a settled answer, right? That it's not, that the media doesn't give us answers, that stories don't give us answers. They give us questions and they give us spaces where we can fight that fight. We can have that argument in those spaces. And of course the problem is that those spaces are inherently controlled by the interests of capital, right? Um, and, and therefore by hegemonic cultural interest, all of that is inherently controlled by that, but that it still is this space. And so when we're talking about pop culture, that where it matters and why it matters is that it's a space of constant cultural negotiation and argument about who yeah. are we, what are we, who do we want to be, who should we be? And, and it, has, it has major impacts. I mean, on the one hand, you could say it's a story, you know, a story is not the same as a particular political action, but I don't, I don't really, I don't really buy that. Uh, I don't really buy that because I think stories are, are about our imaginations and so much of what happens in the world, it happens first in our minds, right? Like right. if we can't see something, if we can't even where I, where, and this actually kind of comes back to this issue of modern storytelling is that for me, if we can't even imagine certain things, we can't, we can't be them, we can't create them. And that's where, that's where it really becomes important. Yes. And I think, a lot of that ties into how people are represented on in these stories and how they're shown yes. to exist in these stories. Yes. I think one of the most frustrating things about the way in which online discourse bastardizes everything is <laughs> the way that you see people consider representation to simply be a face that looks like theirs on the right. screen. Right. For example, I'm autistic. Representation is an autistic person on the screen. No, 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 no. Right. Representation, it's good to represent the various different sorts of people there are, but we have empathy through seeing other people. It's not, it's not about being, as one person I saw on the internet described it, is um, like being like Narcissus. Mm -hmm. gazing at ourselves gazing right. at our reflections it's about right, seeing right. the wider range of right. people I, yeah. I think and, and that's interesting because you sort of see people get really uptight when you have heroes who are re or characters who are recast as being something other than white or other than a man or that sort of thing 
And I was talking with a friend about this a while ago, and and he and I had the, and and we're both we're both queer, we're both we're both neurodiverse, and we had this conversation, which essentially like maybe we're better at spotting these things because there weren't queer neurodiverse people on the screen and so we yeah. had to look at ourselves like narcissists right 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 yeah on the screen like, I mean classic an example okay and you know I'm going to bring this example up because it's inevitable because you know me but Doctor Who yeah okay <laughs> you knew this was coming you knew this was coming <laughs> it was inevitable the grinding dread of Doctor Who coming into the, the discourse having a woman Doctor Who with the most diverse supporting cast of principles the show has ever had is an unalloyed good. However, the last three years of Doctor Who series have been the most conservative mm -hmm. and flat out reactionary yep. that it has been since the early yes. 1970s. Yeah. Uh -huh. Possibly more so. In the early 1970s, um, Doctor Who nerd canon very quickly the doctor the bbc budget of the show was cut and so he couldn't go to other planets so they had a plot line where he winds up on earth and winds up being the scientific advisor to a military organization that investigates the strange and uncanny for three years right the united nations intelligence task force and brigadier lethbridge stewart and all that um <laughs> chap with wings five rounds rapid um all of that and lots of lots of gung-ho so you've got the doctor basically supporting the military so while he doesn't carry a gun, he's surrounded by guys with rifles and that sort of thing, right? But even in that time, half of the storylines are basically with uh, him arguing with the soldiers because he doesn't like the way that they're doing things. Yeah, yeah. So even at the point where the soldiers are good guys. Right. And they are good guys. Yeah. You know, you, you, you like that. And they're likable, cuddly good guys, right? Sergeant Benton, Captain Yates, who's dashing. Sergeant Benton, who's sort of bumbling in comic relief. And these characters are nonetheless argued with. But in recent series of Doctor Who, we have, for instance, the episode where they go to visit Space Amazon. Oh my God. That was when we stopped watching this season, my husband right. and I. That, and was, that, was, that, like, was, that was that episode, yeah. That, that, yeah. that, was, that was the line, right, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the line, yeah, that was the line. There were other things I didn't like about it, but but that episode and the these, the incredibly milk toast, patently like striving to be as inoffensive as possible take they 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 made about space amazon when we know the reality of what actual amazon is doing and yeah because of course, of course the bad guy turns out to be a disgruntled worker right murdering right. people with explosive bubble wrap right yeah that was that was a bridge too far for us we like and, that and, was the, it. The, and, and the company's all right Right, the company's great. The company's fine. It's, Jeff it's Bezos is fine. Space yeah. Jeff Bezos is a good guy. <laughs> you know, and it was, and the doctor getting excited about a space Amazon delivery, and that was really, really horrible. Or even the Rosa Parks episode. Oh God, that was. I mean, again, that was one that just it flies in the face of so much actual history, and the actual history of Rosa Parks is interesting. And it's nuanced and it's complicated and it brings in all kinds of issues with what are called respectability politics, right? Because I mean, Rosa Parks was not the first young black woman to do that. She was chosen to represent the movement because she was, she was perceived a good as, a woman, as a good, yes, as a good victim, right? Yeah. And I thought, oh, they're going to they're gonna tackle that. They can tackle that because we can have that no. conversation now. 
no, no. Why would you? Why would you get into anything having to do with the truth of these issues? And that, it was so disappointing. It was it was disappointing. But the space Amazon was. I just I couldn't stomach it. But there was that, an episode set in India in Partition as well. I saw that one too. Yeah. And again, yeah. yeah. Again, certain certain issues historically were elided. Yes. I think. Very much so. Very and, much so. Yeah. And. Ironically, the, the 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 partition episode was the single best one of the season, but oh. <laughs> wow. it was such a low bar. I mean, the writing's not good either. No, the writing it's not. has taken a downturn. It was interesting that um, that the golden-haired youth, my youngest child, has been going through old Doctor Who episodes, just cherry picking them, and every so often he pulls out one from Stephen Moffat. You remember how much everybody hated Stephen Moffat? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And yet. You and watch yeah. all the Stephen Moffat episodes, yep. and there's so much more straight-out humanity. Yes, yeah. And good writing in those. And I hate to admit it because I have a lot of issues with Stephen Moffat. I'm really not a fan of the Doctor Who series uh, with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. I, you know, I, I really don't. I have issues with Moffat, but on a level of craft, and I think this is kind of what we're sort of circling around is is the relationship between politics, economics, and craft and how that relationship has been really tortured in a lot of modern storytelling. Um, because Stephen Moffat as a craftsman is good at what he does. Yeah. I, I don't like his perspective, you know, no. but whereas Chris Chibnall, is, his craft is not good. His writing craft is not good. And so it's his perspective, he might have a, a perspective that people like and that's doing well in sort of the modern ethos we have of what we're supposed to be doing with story, but his craft as a writer is, is not there. and so. But he has like, an amazing track record of producing successful TV shows. Yeah. Yeah. That people well, watch. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, a lot, I think you and I, as, as, as people who are creative, right, as both people who are sort of critics, cultural critics, but also writers, I think that, that there's a perspective that we have that, that I think gets lost in a lot of these conversations. Um, and you brought up this issue of like fans reacting badly to things like say Ray and Star Wars and, and Finn and yeah. O and all these, you know, the sort of the diversification of these old, especially these old, this IP, uh, which is sometimes called zombie IP that just doesn't die, just keeps getting reiterated again and again and again. Over and, and over. I think over and over. And, you know, I mean, and there's, there's certain critics that I read or YouTubers that I watch who, will often pinpoint correctly the problems with a lot of the craft that's happening in modern storytelling, but they incorrectly link it to the push for diversity. So they, they're not parsing these two things in a way that's actually helpful. Um, and, and so, you know, so and this is where you get sort of the fanboy, the sexist, racist fanboy reaction to things like new Star Wars and new Star Trek. It's not that they're entirely wrong about what's happening to these series, but where they're putting the blame is the wrong place they're putting yes. it on the, which you know which is, i mean and that's that's politics 101 isn't it i mean that's exactly what people do when they i mean i mean the, you know, the star wars sequels here we are yeah. okay so people are angry because you've got finn there who's a black kind of psych, psychic character yeah he's a janitor <laughs> he yeah. doesn't get to be by the end of those three films anything other then essentially the sort of comedy sidekick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. He gets, yeah. and it's basically racist. 
and, and there's, there's there's just no there's no thought and development into who these people are um, at all. Like there's no. yeah, it is. It's it's his his role is racist, but also who is he as a person? Why does he? What what does it mean that he is a stormtrooper and then he leaves? That's not something that's ever explored. There's just so much. And this is this is this is the the, the realm of craft, right? What we're talking about is the realm of writing craft. Right. Writing craft of those movies, it's bad. It is bad. The problem is, is that when you go online to say that, what you're going to be in company, you're going to be in company with the worst sort of deplorable, you know, racists who are saying, oh, it's bad because of women and it's bad because of diversity, you know, and that's not the issue. No, it's bad, actually, because like diversity is weaponized. That's yes, yes, yes. And And that's the thing. It's like. And the problem is, is that you kind of, it's really difficult to argue about. Mm -hmm. You have these, how do you manage to make a popular long running science fiction series that is built to reinvent itself every few years? (laughs) Have a female protagonist for the first time and yet make it more sexist. Yeah. There's yeah. one episode where she's on this spaceship and it's a hospital spaceship and she does the doctor thing where she's trying to take over. And meanwhile, the actual sort of like surgeon on the ship basically sort of like gives her a talking to and puts her in her place at yeah. one point. Would right, that happen right, right. if the doctor was a man? Right, right, right. Would right, the doctor no, be no. called out if he was a right. man? Right. But because she's a woman, suddenly that happens and she never gets to succeed in anything. Mm-hmm. She never gets to win. Mm-hmm. Whatever you might think of Stephen Moffat, the first Stephen Moffat Doctor Who story when he's running the show is The Eleventh Hour, which is my, one of my favourites, right? And essentially the Doctor gets separated from... None of his stuff works. His sonic screwdriver breaks, his TARDIS is broken down and rebuilding itself. It's just him, a tatty shirt, trying to work out how to stop the Earth being destroyed in, 55, in 47 minutes. And Jodie Whittaker deserves to have something like that. Yeah, yeah. She deserves something where her doctor, I mean, I, one of the problems I had with it, and this is, this is again, this, this, this divide between politics and craft is that, um, and I mean, I'm not as much of an aficionado as you, but, but my husband is, and I, so I've seen the last several doctors. I've seen, you know, really up to Eccleston, I've seen episodes quite, quite a bit. So I have a feeling for the modern continuity, the sort of newer right, continuity right. Of the doctor. And I could tell you something specific about every single one of those doctors, except for her. Yeah. They haven't really given her character any specificity at all. Like, what does she bring to the role? What, what does her doctor, what is her doctor all about? Aside yeah. from being the woman, right? It's like you've got Christopher Eccleston and his one's haunted. You've got David yes. Tennant's one who's arrogant. You've yes. got the Matt Smith one who's kind of impish and mercurial. Yes. Which is, yes. is, a, is a character trait. That's not just like shorthand for saying that inconsistent. He's actually deliberately mercurial. No, that, no, he was deliberately, that's right, that's right. Yeah. And then you've got Peter, Peter Capaldi's one who is irascible and angry. Yes, yes. What, how, what, what, how would you describe? what exactly that's my problem and it was clear to me from like the first or second episode that her character trait is woman the girl and that, yes and that the girl and that, and, and I mean that's the, the the issue a lot of the issue I think and a lot of what sort of some of the toxic you know horrible fanboys are 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 griping on without knowing it and doing it in the wrong way because they have their issues 
is that it's pandering. I mean, really what we're talking about is a lot of pandering, a lot of reading the cultural moment, looking at what fans are asking for and giving it to them without any kind of focus on what the craft should be, on reconceptualizing how we tell these stories, because just putting a face in a story form and a, a lineage that is old, just putting a new face on it is not, that's pandering. That's not reconceiving of stories. And I mean, Stuart Hall talked about this with like the idea that representation is not enough. That it's not enough just to put XYZ person in a role that used to be a white man's role if we're still having these stories that number one, largely are coming from the last century, right? Let's let's be real. So mm. much, so many of these, specifically these big, these big um, IP series, these, these worlds, right? Marvel, DC, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who. These are all science speculative fiction stories that are based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' adventure tales. Well, yes, I mean, I mean, but even the specific stories the Marvel movies are necessarily telling. So for example, yeah. the Infinity War is a retread of a comic book series from like 1982? Yeah, exactly, that's like, what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Like, like yeah. Um, and, and I remember taking someone to see um, one of the Spider-Man movies and the big twist is of course that like the the, the second tier hero is actually the villain and right. there aren't really like the, the monsters one. are made up. Yeah, you know? yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's Mysterio. Right. And I'm sitting there going, the bad guy's really Mysterio. I've known that since I was six years old. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's the storytelling itself is just not original, and and it's it's and that's the thing is like if you have the same people behind the scenes telling the stories and just putting a different face on it, it's just it's it's just lipstick on a pig. It's not it's yeah. not a reconceptualization of what the stories are that we're telling. Who are the minds behind these stories? And I you know I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of the people running these these um, worlds um, are white Gen X men. Well, quite. I mean, one of the few, you know. one, of the, one, one good thing that Stephen Moffat did, actually probably not even de necessarily deliberate, there's a bit where there's a planet full of Daleks, the Doctor asks some questions, and then Rory, Amy asks some questions, and then Rory says, what colour are they? And everybody <laughs> looks at him and he goes, all the good questions were taken, and it's a nice little <laughs> joke, but the fact is, they keep bringing the Daleks back with a respray. Right. Yes, that's exact. That's what it is. It's like it's just these Daleks are black, and and so they're somehow different, even though it's really just the same thing with a new coat of yeah. paint. And that's I think that is that is a problem. That is a problem, and it's a problem that all of these stories are just referencing original. They're just all referencing old stories and old ways of thinking about storytelling. Yeah, without adding anything new, and without people behind them who really are invested in the craft of creating. And for me, the problem is, is that this, this kind of stuff, it colonizes our imagination and it limits our imaginations. And I think that this point was actually made on Right Good, which we've talked about, um, uh, right. Benedict's podcast, like shout out to her. Yeah. Um, talked awesome about podcast. this. Like, yeah. Awesome podcast. And um, I think she's talked about this quite a bit that this, you know, that this just replicating the same thing over and over and over again, but putting different faces on it and people are, don't like it. And then we're surprised. It is, it's, it's, it's lazy. And I think it was also a podcast where she talked about specifically how the problem with a lot of these movies is that they're referencing other movies. They're not referencing any other art. 
They're not referencing poetry or literature or painting. They're yeah. filmmakers who are in love with the art of film, period. And a lot of them have gone to film schools where what they've learned is how to make movies. And that's all that they're learning. They're not learning anything about the world outside of that. And as a result, we're getting less and less quality and less and less craftsmanship in the actual art of storytelling. And what's being substituted is this very sort of like socially approved representation that's incredibly limited. It's yeah. incredibly limited. And it's and it's not it's not doing the job that it thinks it's doing. And and you know, and it's easy to write off a lot of the sort of toxic fanboys as being as toxic, toxic masculinity and entitlement and stuff. And there, there is truth to that. There absolutely is. Um, but I mean, there is also a real deficit in the kinds of stories that are being told and how we can even imagine these stories. And I think some of that has, to, it has, some of it has to do with money. You know, quite a bit of it has to do with the political economy, with not wanting to take risks on new storytelling forms, on new voices. And it's not a coincidence that you, a lot of what you write about is from the 70s. I think it's sort of generally understood that the 1970s are one of the best eras for American film. It was also one of the worst. I mean, there was a lot of crap. But, but also was, a, a good period for European film. And yes, absolutely. There was just so much happening at that time yeah. that was so rich. Um, and part of it was that technology had allowed more people to be telling stories. Uh, the What exists now in terms of large scale media conglomerates did not exist then. The old studios had fallen apart. New things hadn't been born. There was more stuff coming out of Russia, Japan, Europe in general. Um, and so you get a lot more viewpoints. You get a lot more perspectives. And that's what's really missing in a lot of the modern stuff is that there's it's one perspective being represented and different people being put on top of that perspective and inside that perspective. But it's still just one perspective. Often when things do come through the cracks, attack that perspective in some way or critique it, they're often willfully misunderstood yeah. okay for instance one, one one thing that one weird thing is that as it currently stands and this is not going to last this is going to change this is going to be clamped down on but at the moment lots of indie studios and lots of like filmmakers who can't make things that are going to go there wind up on netflix right right oh but also lots of like older filmmakers who have fallen out of fashion wind mm -hmm. up on netflix mm-hmm also, Bruce Willis winds up on Netflix, but let's not talk about poor old Bruce Willis <laughs> right now. Because um, I don't know what's going on with that guy. Whatever. But yeah. But, but like, for instance, okay, so Jean-Pierre Jeunet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who back in the early 90s with Mark Caro made The City of Lost Children and Delicatessen. And Delicatessen is like British post-apocalyptic movie, Threads. Yeah. Okay. Australian yeah. post-apocalyptic movie, Mad Max. American post-apocalyptic movie, Damnation Alley. I don't know. There's, um, I mean, there's tons. There's tons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. French post-apocalyptic movie, Delicatessen. <laughs> wow. Oh, the it's French. Got, it's got terrorist vegans. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but uh, you know, and Janae and Cara, and then Cara goes off and just becomes a special effects guy and makes one film of his own. Yeah. Which incidentally is amazing. You should ever see it. It's called Dante Zero One. It's basically okay. a divine comedy in a space prison. Nice. Oh, and it's only like one hour and 10 minutes long as well. It's a win. Nice. But Jeune, he makes Amelie. Yeah. Uh, he makes Mick Max and a few other films, right? And his recent film turned up on Netflix. Right. Yeah. And it's a sci fi yeah. movie. Yeah. Jeune makes a sci fi movie. It's called Big Bug. Have you seen it? 
I haven't seen it yet. No, it's on my list though. It's I'm on my list. the hell out of it, I'm afraid. Okay, that's fine. I don't okay. care. I don't believe in so, spoilers. Just so you know, I don't believe in spoilers. So go ahead. Neither do I, really. <laughs> unless it's unless it's an Italian murder movie of the 1970s where knowing the killer is going to ruin it for you. Incidentally, if you're ever in an Italian murder movie of the 1970s, never ever find yourself uttering the words, I know who the killer is, meet me in the alley, but out back in five minutes and I'll tell you who it is because you will not see the end of the movie. Right, okay, big bug. Okay, you've got an affluent middle-class family and a bunch of other people who wind up in the house at the same time. The next door neighbor, the mother's ex-husband and his new girlfriend. Oh, and and a guy who wants to shag the mum as well. They wind up in the house at the precise moment where there's a robot takeover, like Skynet. Nice. The AI and the house and house robots, which includes a a human-looking robot maid and a kind of like adorable vacuum cleaner robot and um, a thing that basically looks like the head of Einstein on a pedestal, form a plot that essentially they have to protect their humans. So they lock them all in the house. Yes. While outside, the robot rebellion is happening. Wow. And people are being exterminated. Except the people don't understand what's going on, even though the TV is showing the robot rebellion. And it includes things like one of the robots taking over having a debate about the existence of human beings and whether they should be allowed to continue existing with a human representative, nice. right? <laughs> yeah. That's not a thing we've seen. Um, <laughs> it has reality shows that basically show the robots humiliating humans, like stripping them naked, forcing them to be like animals on leads with like wow. you know, goats, yeah. forcing them to fight each other in gladiatorial contacts. Four laughs with a laugh track. That's great. Um, wow. And eventually advertising foie gras made from humans, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, outside, little weird floaty satellite things come by the house with a woman's face who eventually like gives everybody targeted ads every time something goes wrong or something goes, something breaks. Wow. So the fridge, the car, the cars, the cars bust. And the, the, the house is, have you thought about this new car? You know, and that sort yeah. of thing, right? And essentially what the film is about is about how people will probably give themselves over to being the victims of genocide even rather than give up their one-day Amazon delivery. Jesus. <laughs> there are very few really sympathetic characters in this film. Yeah. The only really sympathetic yeah. characters are the teenagers, and one of the characters, one of the teenagers is sympathetic, and the other one becomes sympathetic. Yeah. By the end of the movie, um, yeah. he's the teenage son of the guy who's trying to shag the mum, and he spends the first half of the movie basically just like playing on the internet. He talks in like this horrible, this hilarious <laughs> sort of like fake futuristic slang and that sort of thing, right? But and he eventually sort of like grows himself a backbone. And it's kind of nice. Um, the androids. The artificial intelligences are the most empathetic and decent people in the film. Yeah, it's interesting. Right. And you've got these people who are essentially screwing themselves over because they need their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One even basically hands them over to the robot overlords for a yeah. chance of getting out of the house. It's the film does have a happy ending of sorts. Mm. In that 
a robot rebellion built by a fundamentally flawed system like capitalism is going to wind up screwing itself over through an act of basic incompetence. Interesting. Wow. So there's a basic act of and yeah. But all the reviews I've seen of this film have either gone, it's a shitty French sex farce. You got the man trying to shag the mum. You got the two teenagers. Right. You got the right, boy yeah. trying, the girl trying to shag the boy. You know that's yeah. this is happening in the background. You got the ex-husband and his his much younger wife. Yeah. You know, and so there's a lot of a lot of that Gallic rumpy pumpy and stuff, right? But that's not the thing. That's right. not what it's about. So, but yeah. like a review, I think, and in one of the big outlets as well, I think it was Vanity Fair or Variety or something, just calls it. A, ter- a, a woeful French sex farce and even yeah. films that are positive towards it go about oh the ending's a bit of a cop out and it's like no the ending is just as dark as the rest of it it might be a happy ending and you just think the only reason this film got made is through digital money yeah because they can yeah. make these films cheaply right right well that's I mean and that's the thing and that's that's where we get to the the, the politics and the, the economics right the political economy of it all is that yeah. there's really no space for anything in in theatrical in the world of the theater of theatrical release that's not huge budget or low budget those are the only things that are really theatrical anything mid-budget which it sounds like this is more of like a low to mid-budget kind of a film yeah the kind of thing that at some point in time would have played in all the sort of art houses at the very least um there's just that that's just not there's not a lot of space for that in the market these days and it is it's a it's a crass economic calculus is it made by disney right is it made by disney or michael bay then it's going to play in the theaters is it made by a24 so we're talking budgets of five mil which is a low budget film which still shocks me that five million is considered a low budget film but it is five million is a low budget mm. those might get, have a chance as well but anything in the mid-range it's just been completely scrubbed yeah and and, and all of that is going to streaming um and so you know now there's this fight happening um, and it's really it's a fight between the art and the commerce of the industry, right? Of like, right. you know, people angry about streamers, people like Martin Scorsese angry about streamers because there's no space, there's not a lot of space for his movies and theaters anymore, I guess, although it's not like he's hurting. Uh, but I mean, I do think that it's pointing to a real problem, which is that the narrowing of these avenues and the sort of ghettoizing force of, of streaming media, which I don't, I don't agree that it should be seen that way, but I think it is seen that way. Oh, Scorsese, right about so much, wrong about so much. I'm really not a Scorsese fan. And that no, me either. Those, but yeah, it's, when, when, he, when, when he basically said that Marvel films were basically products <laughs> and theme park I mean, rights, he's, he's he got a lot of hate right. for that, but was he wrong? Yeah, no, he's not wrong. And, you know, I we see the Marvel movies, we go see them because we enjoy going to the theater. I really like going to movie theaters. I don't have anything against streaming. I watch, we watch... I think we watch at least one movie pretty much every day. Really, yeah, honestly, we watch a lot of movies. As you I, mean, I see so many movies. All the time. Right, yeah. so that means if we want to go to the theaters, a lot of the times we're going to go to see product. And yeah. that's okay sometimes. I don't mind. I mean, I've seen all the Marvel movies. I've seen a lot of the, sadly, I've seen a lot of the DC movies. Um, I mean, so we, you know. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. You know. <laughs> when, you, when you take film seriously, sometimes that means you watch a lot of crap. As you know, you watch a lot of crap along with it. Ah, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, like it's 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 really interesting when you see stuff. Occasionally, you'll see a big budget thing, and it will 
have something in it which is an attempt to kick out against yeah so sure. for example the matrix resurrections now all the people i know who loved it the most are trans all right let's just go let's just go that there right me. yeah that doesn't surprise me yeah. right but the matrix have you seen it yes yeah yeah and that. the entire film is essentially a middle finger to an industry that wanted them to make it make a sequel yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Right down to the bit where the Merovingian turns up as a homeless man halfway through and says, screw your franchise sequel. <laughs> he actually literally says, you know, fuck yeah. your franchise sequel in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, clearly, I, I don't know how the Wachowski, Lana Wachowski got away with that. I, I, was, I, I, I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot, but I liked it a lot because it makes no sense as a story, but... Oh yeah, no, it doesn't. It, uh, but I think so. What I enjoyed about it, um, and I, I, I had issues with the, again the craft aspect. I had issues with, and that's and that's been true for quite a few of the Wachowski movies, mm -hmm. you know, in general. But um, I really enjoyed seeing like two middle-aged people in a uh, a love dynamic. Like I, I, yeah. I enjoyed that so much of it was about these two people still loving each other through all of these changes, through these like things that make them unrecognizable. Which I also actually imagine that's one of the reasons that a lot of that a lot of trans people enjoyed it was this idea of like being able to see through these sort of superficial things that make us unrecognizable to see through to the core of this person yeah. and just seeing these two middle-aged people and I mean you know no shade because they're they're two middle-aged actors so they're still just humanly gorgeous beautiful middle-aged people I mean just a beautiful like more beautiful than like 20 year olds you know but still um I think that I really I appreciated that I appreciated yeah. and I appreciate and this is sad to say but the lack of love, the lack of like genuine love and affection as something that, that we see between characters regularly outside yes. of sort of the very limited rom-com genre, which and I don't hate rom-coms. I quite enjoy rom-coms actually, even bad ones, but but it's a limited genre, uh, like all genres are. Yeah. And to be able to see that as a focal point of a sci-fi movie, I found incredibly and, and love actually described as a real as a, as a real and convincing thing as opposed to because because how does how love in action movies and superhero movies is when the object of the male hero's desire gets killed and he goes out for revenge very much a lot of the time it is yeah yeah i mean that yeah. happens how many yeah. marvel movies does that happen in right no that's right alone that's right. and it's and it's and it's uh to go back to um something raquel benedict wrote right the um everyone is beautiful and no one is horny article oh yeah yeah I just love that. incredible i love that article so much and yeah. um i mean she's absolutely right in that there's not a lot of apparently sex. is acephobic by the way oh that article oh good yeah oh, why do you hate diversity <laughs> why, why do you hate diversity why do we hate diversity um uh no i mean but also it's not just that the marvel movies don't feature real sex or sex that feels meaningful or beautiful or any um, sex at all or any sex at all or any but there's also there's very little in the way of affection there's very yeah. in, little in the way of love of actual love between characters that's not played for laughs sparky or, dialogue uh, yeah or sparky dialogue which which is which is um distancing right there's so much distancing that goes on even yeah. in the relationships that are depicted as like they really are into each other like uh, say star lord and gamora it's all sparky distancing and it's all him sort of pushing at her in this way. It just doesn't feel like actual affection. And so to see like an actual, a relationship that's actually about love. Yeah. 
at, at the core of a sci-fi movie. I really appreciated that. Just for once, someone acting for love doesn't get everybody killed. Right. Because there's, right. there's this thing yeah. halfway through where a couple of like the psychic characters, and incidentally, what I love about the Wachowskis is that they tend to like give actors recurring jobs. So half yeah. the cast of Sense8 were in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that too. Yeah, yeah so I like got it two, two alumni from Sense8 who are like goodies, yeah. second tier goodies. Yeah. And they're in the background. And one says, you do realize that everyone who shipped out with Neo and Trinity died. And, and, and the guy is like, yep. And then she says, so what does that mean for us? It means yeah. we're both gonna die. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> they do not. Yeah, yeah. Everybody yeah. lives. Yeah. And that's kind of wonderful. It really, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know if this is aging or if it's just being really, really jaded about and disappointed because when you watch so many movies, when you watch so much, you, you, inherently your tastes do become a lot more refined just because you've seen so many of the same things again and again and again. Right. Um, it just, you can't help it. And I guess you can call me a snob. I, it's fine. I'm, I'm snob, sure. Um, but it's really disheartening <laughs> to me just the, the casual, the casualty of violence and how yeah. how much more common that's getting and I feel that way every time I mean it's really really you can see it really a lot in the DC movies um the the Batman style well I mean I know how you feel about Zack Snyder I feel the same way um but yeah. one of the horrible things and one of the things that really feels like a violation of who that character should be of who's of who Superman is supposed to be is how casual the deaths are there's just so much casual collateral damage all the it's just that's everything that's everything and there's and that's in, it's inhumane really is what it and is. yeah in the second richard donner superman movie way back there's a scene where general zod who appears in the Zack snyder man of steel but in the richard donner version of that conflict there is a moment where richard where, where general zod has a bus full of school children and it stakes Mm -hmm. it's right. a moment where superman cannot allow them to be hurt and will allow the villain to escape mm -hmm. rather than allow innocent people to be harmed right yeah but that's no longer a thing no because that's a moral choice that that is going to force an uncomfortableness on the audience and i think a lot of what the dictates of a lot of this modern, particularly these sort of like major properties is to never do that. You don't ever right. want to leave anybody with any kind of discomfort whatsoever. You don't, and because they're being made for the most number of people possible, what that means is inherently watered downness to where everything just becomes just a buzz of the same action, 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 could be joke, could be joke, could be, I mean, it's just that again and again and again. A half hour scene at the end that's like someone else playing Xbox for half an hour. Right. And then yeah. a big moment, a big payoff where, where right. which is supposed to be hope. Right, right, yeah. We're not asking for bad endings in movies, are we? No, no, I, no. I don't think so. <laughs> no, no, but I mean but like- This is the thing, but okay, so- how do we get hope in a film without it being a trite product? What, 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 what do we call hope then? What looks like hope? Can we think of a movie where, where it looks like hope? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Let's see. I mean, I'm sure I can. Do you have an answer to that? Because I'm sure I can, but I might oh. need to think about it. Good question. See, again, going the Wachowskis, I think are quite good at this, right? I think you're talking about crafts. I think it's because 
they often get given a very hard time for craft right because they're not interested in that part of it they're interested in getting a feeling across yeah for sure you seen jupiter ascending yes <laughs> right several times actually <laughs> everybody hates it's me too everybody hates jupiter ascending right <laughs> yeah but bloody yeah. hell yeah well, here's the funny thing for me and i mean again i think this comes from from like really being engaged with the art of film is like there are tons of movies that are bad movies that I think are, that I love. <laughs> right. And because for me, you know, and this is something I think also that is left out of a lot of discussions of art is where effective pleasure, like where pleasure comes from. Right. Because it doesn't, something doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be a great example of craft for me to love it. There are, for example, I freaking loved the Cats movie. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm not ever going to say it's a good movie. It's not. It's a bad movie, but I will tell you, it was one of the best times I had at the theater that year because it's so bad that it's transcendent. Man, and I would, I, I, I'm very excited to watch it again. From the yeah. <laughs> the lost his memory. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, but she is smiling alone. Um, okay, but thinking about it and thinking about like, actual sort of hopefulness in movies that isn't about something and I mean there's lots of films I haven't seen obviously so but I think it, this actually brings me around to the other side and about my deal breakers mm -hmm. for movies so my deal breaker for a movie is that the people actually have to be people yes who behave like people so obviously I see a lot of horror movies because that's my field right yeah same um so there's a film that came out last year called Censor. And yeah, I, have I saw to, that. Yeah. And I have to be really kind of careful about Censor because the director's first time director is a woman director. Loads of craft in that film. Mm -hmm. Won a lot of awards, generally beloved by people. Um, the director has inevitably had all sorts of horrible sexist abuse. Mm -hmm. Of course. Being a woman making a movie. I really, really did not enjoy Censor. Yeah. Because I didn't yeah. think there was a single decision in that film that was true to a human being. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I think that you're right. And I think that this, this, I think this is circling around this question of joy because so something that for me in all storytelling, in all forms of storytelling, that's really important is um, not realism, like um, mimetic fiction where we're no. trying to capture life to the best. I mean, sometimes that's great. There are some movies that I love that are like that, that, uh, for example, have you seen Eighth Grade? No, I haven't, no. Oh, that, I mean, it, it's one of the most harrowing movies I've ever seen, which is what it's supposed to be. It's because it's about anxiety and it's spectacular. I mean, it's really, and it's very much a mimetic piece. It's trying to capture a real feeling and a real experience. And that's right. great. But what makes it work to me is the same thing that makes something like Get Out work to me, which is that <sighs> there is, which is, I love, of course, as, as you do as well, um, which is psychological realism. What I demand yeah. out of storytelling is psychological realism. I will believe any, I will suspend every ounce of disbelief if I feel like I'm following real characters who have believable psychology within the context that we've been provided. But they have to feel like they're real people. And so many stories, so many films, they're not people. They're, they're, they're pawns that are being moved. Moved to around. Accomplish yes to accomplish so plot can happen or, right yeah and and so like the choices they make are not grounded in anything real um what happens to them and when when that's the case i think that you can't have hope and joy 
like any joy that's generated out of something where it's just it's just all fake it's just it's fake it's not authentic it's not honest and yeah. so that's how I feel about a lot of stuff I mean so and I mean a lot of horror movies like for example I can't think of a single horror movie I've seen in the last 10 years that was billed as a, fem a feminist horror movie that I thought was good at all just at all um because they didn't feel psychologically real they didn't feel like they were grounded in real people of whatever gender grappling with being a real person in a situation they all felt like they were designed to tell to make a point hashtag uh, to, feminism hashtag feminism yeah hashtag the message right and that's that's not what makes compelling storytelling what makes compelling storytelling is someone who feels real dealing with a circumstance whatever that circumstance is and I think that's where for me I only feel real hope like so for example get out I think get out is incredibly hopeful I, I, yeah, no, I love that. I mean, the, I, right? I, I know that there is there's an alternative bad ending to get out, but I think the happy right. ending. It was the right choice. It was I the right was, choice. I mean, also, right also us as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. I'm really excited about his new movie. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. But yeah, us yeah. is fantastic. And us is fantastic because those people feel like people. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. You know, you've got a family that likes each other. That's right. I know. And you also are getting, and I think, I think his movies, his films, um, get it kind of what we're talking about with the difference between representation that feels real and representation that feels to me, that feels like pandering, yeah. which is that he has a very clear perspective. And that perspective comes from his lived experience as a black man. And it infuses everything he's doing. And, and he's not creating art with the purpose of here's the message. He's trying to tell good stories that because of his perspective also have a very specific point of view from which you can get a lot of nuanced understanding of the world yeah. not just a message a point i mean it's one of the things i liked about big bug as well the journey film is that yeah. the characters feel like people they do yeah. stupid stuff i i saw a thing that annoyed me this well annoyed not really but a thing that interested me this week was um that one of the writers of the Expanse series, and I don't actually I quite like the Expanse. I thought the TV show was quite fun, but um, one of the writers of the Expanse novels basically said that he really hates the thing in horror, 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 where um, people make bad decisions. Why can't people just sort of like be competent and have bad stuff happen to them anyway? And it's like, well, okay, that would be scary. But in the real world, when you are disgusted, or afraid, or shocked, or traumatized, you make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Why do you go down into the basement? Because you haven't seen that movie, and also it's your freaking basement. Right, 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 right. Of right, course, yeah. you're not expecting something to happen. You know, I can't even think of a single film that involves someone going into the basement. You know, actually, um, <laughs> I, I think it's a trope that doesn't really exist. <laughs> Although it's probably a page on it for TV tropes, but I'm sure <laughs> oh, TV tropes. Everything is worse because of TV tropes. Again, it's realistic. I mean, one of the things I saw on Netflix recently was Midnight Mass. Yeah. Again, Midnight Mass. I liked Midnight Mass. Apparently, apparently, it's everybody's least favorite Mike Flanagan joint. Really interesting. Um, I felt like it was one of the most true to where his heart is. Of everything I think it's I probably the best one actually. And one of the yeah, things really. That, yeah. Every review I've seen is about how it falls apart at the ending. Oh. Huh. See, the ending that. involves a bunch of people making on both sides making terrible decisions. Yeah. 
yeah. really After stupid being, decisions. And they've been, I mean, but I, and, and I think it's justified, not just because of what's happening in the moment, because, but because they've been they are. weeks, who they are, and also because they've been living with this terror growing for weeks. And when you, when you're living in that situation for a long time, like it actually short circuits your brain. That's what but, fear but when, does. When the, uh, when, when the awful bigoted woman basically gets everybody to burn the entire town down. Yeah, that's, that felt very real to me. I'm like, yes, people would do that. People do do that kind of thing. They That's do it all the time. I mean, you know, we've lived through 2020 and 2021. We know they do that sort of thing. Right, right, right. Well, this is the thing. Like, I so on the one hand, I do find that, and something that that uh, that I think about a lot, and that my husband and I talk about a lot, is when characters show no curiosity. Like something has happened, and they show no curiosity. That yeah. can be frustrating because that can be cheap, right? But I think, like, in terms of making decisions bad decisions, good decisions. Yes, it's great when characters make really good choices or they show how smart they are in, in a crisis situation, but not every person would do that, right? Mm -hmm. Like you wanna, you wanna make their, their responses to fear be consistent with who you're showing them to be. Yes, and, and, and I think, I think right? in a horror film as well, you, people are like going, I wouldn't do that in that situation. The thing is the entire point of the horror film is that you would do that, that's right. why it's scary. That's why it's, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. And I think one of the, so horror films, I think one of the things that I really love about the final girl trope, and I know that that's kind of falling out of favor for various reasons, and some of those reasons are good, and some of them aren't, uh, but I think you see this in Get Out as well, is that um, one of the things that distinguishes sort of the survivor, right, the person who can survive the horror situation, which is one of the reasons we watch it, right, is to see, right, like, yeah. what are the, how, how do you become sensitized and aware? It is literally that quality of awareness. That's what it is. It's, the ability to look at a situation and to be paying attention to a situation. That's one of the things that, so it's, it's you know, I mean, if you look at 70s stuff, it's like, oh, she's the virgin. And, you know, I mean, all these stereotypical things are not untrue. They're not untrue. But think about like how that character is oriented toward what's happening. Inevitably, 90% of the time, what makes that character the survivor when others don't is that that character pays attention and has a healthy sense of fear. Yeah. That they that they that they they don't try to rationalize things away. They don't ignore details. They don't jump to the, the first obvious conclusion. They're aware, they're sensitized. And this is why it's often a young woman. Um, because young women, and the same thing I would say in get out, when you are a marginalized person <laughs> or a person who's not part of a dominant, you always are seeing things from a different perspective. And it's that issue of perspective. I was thinking about this specifically in a movie, and I know this is a movie that you probably would hate if you've seen it as um, M. Night Shyamalan's Split. I'm not going to defend the fucked up things about the movie. I part of my language. I'm not going to defend like the, the ableism. I'm not going to defend that. Yeah. What, I, what I will say that I think that I'm not going to defend any of that. Not at all. I'm not even going to bother. Um, but oh. what I, th I think is effective about the film, though, um, and problematic, but effective, and what really works is the way they... Have you seen it, by the way? No. Okay. okay. So um, Anya Taylor-Joy's character is the final girl. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the way that he conceives of it is that she's the final girl because she has lived with an abusive relative for like six years. She's, she's right. being constantly abused by this man. And so when she's taken hostage with these two other girls who, who do not have that experience, who come from very healthy homes, um, she's aware of things and thinking about things in a way that they're not. And so it's her perspective, her perspective of awareness, her perspective of, of just her perception that is partly what makes her 
the final girl. And I think that that's, that's where we get into like, okay, this character is doing something that is psychologically motivated within who they've shown us to be. Right, they have a goal. Right. They have personality right. traits. Okay. They have psychological realism. Does that make sense? And yeah. that—that's the quality. I think you see that again and again and again. You see that in Get Out. That you know, I mean, like it is and even more so in Us. And that's right. It is their perspective that gives them a unique position to face the horrors that are happening. Right. That—that yeah. that is the thing that matters. Yeah, I think I think that's very 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 true. Um, we didn't actually answer the question of where we find hope, though. Where, where, where is the hope <laughs> and the joy? Um, I mean, I think, I think obliquely we are, though. So, like, for me, for me, okay. it's this. Hope and joy can only exist when I feel that a character who is a real person has been put through hell and has earned the hope and the joy because they've been put through hell. And I think this is where, and, like, this is a dictate that screenwriters will tell you and writers will tell you all the time, like, you have to put your character through everything. And I think part of the problem I have with a lot of contemporary stuff is that there's a real reticence, especially, especially when we're representing mar marginalized people, when we get into this politics of representation area of, like, oh, well, you know, we have a woman doing this, and so we don't want to put her through too much. We need to show that she's just unequivocally a badass all the time she's just she's in this position because she's a badass and she's just superior and she's not actually suffering there's no hope or joy in that for me because it's not human i've got one okay good i've got in fact yeah i've got one titan yes i haven't seen that yet right you like that um, one yeah yeah i i i i you need to see it um okay i it's the best film I've seen for years um but Titan has a character who is unsympathetic right yeah okay it is not a spoiler this is revealed in the first 15 minutes the lead character Alexia as played by Agathe Roussel who is all angles and broad shoulders and who is terrifying mm -hmm. is a serial killer she's kind of got like a really unusual sort of like attitude towards a serial killing she's sort of like she's about to kill people and it's like oh, <laughs> bloody hell do I have to kill this person too Oh man! Oh man! I've got to indulge in like an orgy of carnage. Halfway through, circumstances mean that she's got to go on the run and go incognito. The second half of the film goes to unexpected places, which explore where things like familial love come from. And she goes through hell. And at the end, when the words I love you are uttered, they mean something. And there are consequences in this film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there, and it's interesting, it's like all the violence, it's front loaded, all the violence, mm -hmm. all the bloody violence. Oh my God, the bit with the chair. Oh. I'm not selling it, am I? Um, but all the violence <laughs> no. is front-loaded. It's all in the first half hour. Okay. And then That's maybe good. the first 40 minutes or so. And then there's like two sequences, one sequence of like, one sequence of carnage in the film, which is just before the middle point of the film. And then after that point, it's not about the violence. It's about who someone is and who they are in relation to other people. Mm -hmm. and what we do mm -hmm. in order to love people mm -hmm. and how love is a choice mm -hmm. and i wouldn't have thought a film that's being marketed as you know 
an homage to Cronenberg might actually Cronenberg gets gets a rap for being really chilly but all of his films are actually really humane yeah yeah actually um but that's a side point but yeah um I wouldn't have thought a film that was basically like I I forget what it was oh yeah Crash Meets Tetsuo was how it was described (laughs) Wow, okay. <laughs> it's not Crash Meets yeah. Tetsuo, only with yeah. a woman. It's not. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not even remotely like that. It's something else entirely. Someone gets impregnated by a car. But, you know, it, it, it's the second half of the film. The first half of the film is full of, like, mayhem and weird sort of, like, stuff happening. And then the second half of the film is strange in an entirely different reason. Mm-hmm. And it's actually beautiful, mm-hmm. which I was not for one expecting. Cool. I'll check it out, yeah. definitely. I think it, I mean, I think what you're hitting on too is this issue of catharsis, right? Yeah. Like, like the point of storytelling is catharsis in some sense. It's not just morality plays and lessons. I mean, those are things we can certainly get from stories, but I think, and I think one of the reasons, I mean, I think for me, I know one of the reasons I like horror, and I suspect it's similar for you, is that it's one of the genres, one of the few genres that provides immediate catharsis when it's done well. That's yes. what it's all about, right? That's the whole point of it is catharsis, is working through something and the violence is part of that process of catharsis and that, that oh wow feeling that you get. For me, that is strongly correlated with hope and joy. For me, yes. that's like, that's where it lives. But you can't get that if you don't go there. <laughs> you can't get that if you're not willing to really dive, to do the deep dive, to have the complicated, painful, you know, argument in the piece of work itself about what it is that you're doing. And I think, you know, the best stuff is kind of making an argument about what it means to be human or the human condition under X circumstance. And too much stuff is just doesn't do that. It's just not, it's not engaging on that level. And Indeed. so anything that's not, you know, anything that's not engaging on that level for me is, is devoid of any kind of hope because it doesn't move me. And I think, the primary goal of, well, at least for me, the responsibility of art should be to move. There needs to be some kind of movement there. There needs to be some kind of emotion there. Otherwise you can't reach that catharsis at all. Indeed. I think that that is a really good point to sort of bring this discussion to a close. I think that's- We've been talking for a while. <laughs> well, yeah. it's, been, it's been really good. And yeah, it's yeah, been really yeah. fantastic talking. But yeah, um, if you were to say one final thing, what do you think it would be? about um, sum things up as my guest yeah um so i i think my one final thing would be that i um i think that there is a real there's an interesting kind of battle happening right now in the world of media and the world of film over um politics and money and whose stories matter and whose voices matter and how we tell those stories and we're in a point I think not unlike the 70s where things are unsettled, right? Like as a result, we're getting a lot of garbage, but there also are gems out there. And I think it's worthwhile. It gives my life incredible meaning to seek out the gems. And I think that my hope is that we're moving into a phase where we're going to have more stories that are told from these different perspectives, more stories that are really engaging with this question of humanity in the context of whatever kind of horror (laughs) we can imagine. And I think, you know, we really need that because for me part of what I love about movies is that they help 
expand the range of my imagination. They're, they're a place for me of incredible empathetic connection and imagination. And we need that. <laughs> we need that because if we can't even imagine a better future, we can't create one. And so that's my hope. I guess that's my hope for where film is going. And um, yeah, it's fun to talk to you always about this kind of thing. And maybe we can do this again <laughs> in the future about, I hope so. you know, when something yeah. comes along or some other idea comes along that you want to explore, let me know. Indeed. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been fantastic. Question Embodies is an independent podcast hosted and edited by me, Howard David Ingham. Music is by Stephen Horry. Thanks for listening.